1984. Insurance, main care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. Listeners can support WERU Community Radio in many ways, one of which is to donate your used car or truck. You value and depend on WERU for entertaining and informative grassroots radio. And we likewise depend on you for contributions that keep the station going strong. Donating your vehicle is one way to help out. If you have a car or truck that no longer meets your needs, but is still in driving condition, why not recycle it to funds for your community radio station? It may be worth a lot or a little, but either way, it can do some good for WERU. For more information, go to weru.org and click on the green donate button or the support WERU menu item. You can also get started by calling 1-877-411-3662. Safe driving, and don't forget to have WERU tuning on your radio. Thanks. Support for WERU comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org, presenting diverse music and alternative public affairs. It is 10 o'clock and it is time for Healthy Options. Good morning. On today's Healthy Options program, we'll explore the challenges and successes in providing reproductive health care and access to family planning here in Maine and nationally in the present political climate. Our guests are Julie Jenkins, who is here with us in the studio, and Kate Vaughn, who is on the phone with us from Brunswick. Julie Jenkins is a certified nurse practitioner and has worked for Maine Family Planning at numerous clinic sites before she became the nurse practitioner at Belfast Family Planning in 2016. She worked previously as a nurse practitioner in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she was also an associate clinical professor at the University of California. In 2012, she traveled to Africa for a project engaging in aid work to provide cervical cancer prevention and treatment training with doctors and nurses in Kenya and Uganda. Julie Jenkins is the lead plaintiff in litigation challenging Maine's physicians-only abortion law, which we'll hear more about on today's show. Kate Vaughn joined Maine Family Planning as their community organizer last February, and before that, she worked for the statewide campaign, Healthcare is a Human Right, which was run by the Southern Maine Workers Center. Kate is a longtime feminist and anti-racist activist and organizer, and she's board member a board member for Survivor Speak USA, a survivor-led nonprofit working to end sex trafficking and exploitation in Maine. Welcome, Kate and Julie. I'm glad you could both be with us today on Healthy Options. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Yeah, good morning. Kate, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, super. Um, first off, uh, main uh, family planning 
Is that for the whole state? Where where exactly are you working? And tell us a little bit about what your organization does, a little bit of the, the programs that you provide and that just to kind of get a, a little bit of a background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Julie, do you want to do that or you want me to? <laughs> <laughs> well, we cover, um, we cover all the way from northern Maine. So we have um, 17 clinics throughout the state um, going from Fort Kent, Presque Isle, Callis, Machias, all the way down to Lewiston, Rumford, um, Augusta. So we cover that whole that whole stretch of area, and we um, we do uh, reproductive health care. Um, we provide um, birth control, including the long-acting reversible contraceptives such as Nexplanon and the IUDs, um, uh, birth control pills. Um, STI screening, pregnancy tests, uh, transgender health care. So we cover a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. So you're doing sex education as well every, and, and that, that kind of thing. So you're working with different age groups? Mm-hmm. What's, what's yep. Um, so, you know, we talk to teens about healthy sexuality. We talk to adults about healthy sexuality. We talk to, um, you know, uh, women in menopause about healthy sexuality. And so that differs throughout the lifespan. But. Right. And, and Kate, let's bring you in here. What is a community uh, organizer in terms of uh, main family planning? What, what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, we have, in addition to our direct services and the education work, we have a public affairs department. So we are working, we have a lobbyist, my boss, who works at the state house. Um, and so my work as a community organizer is really to do public education and provide ways for ordinary people to get connected to what's happening at the federal and state level in terms of policy. So um, really giving people avenues to support reproductive rights and um, help us to advance access and protect the access that we have now. And so we work on a whole host of bills at the legislature um, around contraception and um, abortion rights, certainly, but also things that have to do with really anything that's related to supporting women, LGBTQ folks, and their families, and particularly low-income folks across Maine. Um, So we work on bills that are about the public safety net, um, and um, my boss is at the State House today talking about paid family leave. So these are things that we're um, we're working on. So all of that really affects the health of of individuals. Do you work with men as well? Mostly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we work with everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And 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 so it seems that uh the access to this is really a healthcare issue, isn't it? We're we're talking a little bit of politics in terms of legislative work, but really how does this impact women and men in in terms of their health in in the state of Maine and and probably nationally too with other organizations doing doing the kind of work that you are? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, it, it, there's been a saying for a while that um, reproductive health care is primary care for women. And, you know, there was – the reality is that, you know, in the childbearing years, these are the kind of services that people need access to. They need they need breast exams. They need, um, you know, mammograms. They need um, pap smears. They need follow-up for pap smears. You know, these are these are basic – for for women and um and you know for men it provides them the opportunity to come in to get screened if they're having um 
you know, and, and they can get uh, testicular exams and those sorts of things as well, and then and then referrals from that. So it's certainly we do have have um, uh, services for men, and but for women, you know, this is a very this is a very sort of primary care provision. Yeah, and also we, you know, the transgender health care um, that we provide, um, hormone replacement therapy, that is something that a lot of folks who are in family planning have started doing across the country. And so we're meeting a need for a population also that's really marginalized, even though that health care is really essential um, to that population. Um, and also, you know, we are an abortion care provider, which we talk about. It, it's health care, right? It's a safe, common health care procedure. Um, and so, unfortunately, I think a lot of the things that we do have been politicized when really we are meeting um, these health care needs for around 21,000 people across the state of Maine every year, right? Um, and we provide essential services. So when, when a woman or when a family... Come, comes in, uh, are people coming specifically for, I, I need my birth control pills, or, or are they also coming because I found a lump, or there's something yeah, going it's, on it's all of in my breast, things. or something's wrong with my period, I'm bleeding all the time? <laughs> right. I think oftentimes they find us because they're looking for birth control, and then they continue with us because they realize they're getting some really comprehensive um, education and some really comprehensive care, and that this is a safe place for them to come when they have any of those needs, you know. And once they get more comfortable from coming in and getting birth control, you know, we become these people's providers for many, many years. We have clients who, you know, have been with us for twenty, twenty-five, thirty years who bring their their um, their children to see us, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, so, so are you doing a pediatric care as well? No, but we do start at 12. So we will see patients okay. from 12 on. So um, are, I'm noticing this is perhaps a different topic, but are you noticing that some 12-year-olds are, are having any different kinds of needs these kinds of, these years than in previous ex- your pre- previous experience? You've been doing this for a while, Julie. Yeah. I, I You know, I think it's I, – I think that – the twelve-year-olds we're seeing now are still having the same the same needs that the twelve-year-olds we were seeing ten years ago had, um, and you know, for a lot of them, it's um, you know, we we do not see a lot of twelve-year-olds. I mean, that's right. you know, we're talking usually, you know, most of our patients we are starting at fifteen or sixteen or seventeen or eighteen. Um, but with 12-year-olds, a lot of times it's their parents bringing them in to have a conversation with us about, you know, about healthy sexuality and about, you know, what might be available going forward and to introduce them to this place as a safe as a safe place for them to come for services when they're ready. And so that's mostly what I see for for people in that age group. And Kate, what's, what's happening uh, legislatively? I know that um, – that we are experiencing some questions about some of the funding and that that kind of work i think what is it title 10 which is mm-hmm. a national program that's in limbo or is it in limbo <laughs> maybe you could give us a little uh update and i know uh that there's been some controversy about who's in charge of that program i believe uh, right. <laughs> yeah we have a uh, a, and people who don't believe in reproductive health uh, or don't believe that right. health, that reproduc- uh, contraception works. And, uh, you know, t- t- talk a little bit about that. Bring us up yeah. to speed a little. 
Yeah, I mean, it has not been a boring time for us. Oh, um, my. Well, there is a Chinese <laughs> curse, you know, Kate. May you live in interesting times, but... Yeah. yeah are well, we? Okay. <laughs> we, we are in interesting times, to say the least. So, um, as Julie mentioned, you know, we... And I think you're talking about we are the Title X grantee for the state of Maine, and Title X is the federal family planning program. Um, and so um, that program has been in existence, I think, since 1970. And so um, since the, the Trump administration um, has been empowered, there is there have been a lot of appointments to what's called the Office of Population Affairs that oversees Title X. A lot of appointments of officials who do not believe in contraception, who are um, strictly pro-abstinence, um, and who are certainly anti-abortion advocates. And so um, where we're at right now is, you know, we're, we're the Title X grantee, and across the country, Title X folks and organizations have been waiting to receive um, a request for funding proposals, which is the typical thing that happens. And that proposal hasn't gone out. And so um, that's kind of where we're at in terms of the limbo is waiting to hear, well, are we going to get a a call for proposals? (laughs) Are we going to be able to um, try to renew our our status as a Title X grantee as we have been for years? Or um, is there going to be a lapse in funding? So that's something that people are dealing with nationally that's really frustrating Um, and part of certainly a broader attack on family planning providers, but particularly um, those of us who also provide abortion care. Um, And so um, that's what's happening you know, federally. And of course, recently there was the attempt at a 20 week abortion ban. And so there's a lot going on federally. And at the state level, there's a lot happening too. Um, you know, but we're, we're lucky in Maine. I think that we have, um, we do have a state level law that recodifies Roe v. Wade and that's been around since 1993. Um, and we have some strong advocates at the, at the state level. And so, um, you know, we we partner with the folks who are and who want to work with us, and we also try to do lots of education with our state lawmakers about um, the services we actually provide and demystify some of it and debunk some of the myths that are out there. But we're definitely we're seeing a real emboldened um, group of people at, in the federal administration who want to, I think, see, see an end to what we do. I want to just backtrack a little. Tell me, what what does that mean in Maine? That means that we have something that, what does that recodifying Roe versus Wade mean? So like Roe v. Wade, you know, the Supreme Court decision 1973 that made abortion legal, essentially, right? Um, there are now, there are states that have decided, well, we want to make sure that we reiterate that at the state level. Um, and so Maine decided to do that back in the 90s. And so, you know, for a long time, the anti-abortion movement has focused, had focused on trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, but they've actually done a lot of damage at the state level by just implementing lots of restrictions that are unnecessary and harmful for people trying to access health care, including abortion care. Um, so what it means is that Maine has said, basically, whatever happens federally, you would have to, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you would also have to overturn this state-level law, right? We have this state-level law in place that says people have the right um, to access abortion. So what's the, what, what is the, the statute now? We can, when did, can women uh, get, uh, choose to get an abortion up to how many weeks? What is the... Um, and Julie, I don't know if Julie, you want to talk a little bit more about like what the, what the access looks like yes. in, in Maine. 
well, Access in Maine. So we have um, three clinics that are publicly available, um, and that is Mabel Wadsworth in, in Bangor and um, our clinic in Augusta and then Planned Parenthood in Portland. Um, and so um, that involves a lot of travel for people, obviously. Uh, we do have – we at Maine Family Planning have expanded to doing telemedicine. So we have um, medication portion available at all of our all of our clinics, um, and so uh, we can talk a, a little bit later about exactly how that looks. But that does expand access, and we can also mm-hmm. talk later later a little bit later about it, the ways in which it does and does not expand access, mm-hmm. um, and why the the lawsuit that we're that that I'm involved in is, um, and that Maine Family Planning is involved in, is is important to actually um, changing that. And, and the gestation level, so like medication abortion is available up to 10, 10 weeks. weeks. And so that is at yeah. any of our 18 clinics, up to 10 weeks, someone can receive medication abortion. And then aspiration, which is Aspiration abortion, which is sometimes called surgical, but it's not surgery. So we, it's aspiration abortion is the thing I think most people typically think of when they hear abortion. And um, Maine Family Planning provides that up to 14 weeks. Am I right about that, Julie? 14, and mm-hmm. um, and Mabel does four, it goes to 14, and Planned Parenthood in Portland, I believe, goes to 18. Right. I think they're, yeah, either 16 or 18. So that, you know, once you're... In terms of the 20-week ban that was being, you know, considered in Congress, in Maine, if you need something beyond that, you know, 16 or 18 weeks, whatever it is that Planned Parenthood does, you, you would have to travel to Boston. Yeah, you're going to have to travel out of state. Um, and well, so, why, yeah. why is that? Why, why do, since the, it's the law that we can, you know, why, why do we have that limit here in Maine? Well, it's not so much that we have a limit here in Maine. We have mm-hmm. uh, an access issue as far as providers. Uh, and mm-hmm. that is, that's true all over. That's true all over the country. It's not, um, you know, uh, abortion may be legal, but who can get one is kind of the... So that's how closing of clinics and closing, closing of clinics And also, you know, just providers who are not willing to go uh, you know, to to um, have a have a higher um, gestational limit, and so um, you know you have to often travel to the larger urban um, centers for mm-hmm. you know you're talking Boston or New York or um, to access to access that, that sort of care. So what we know is uh, about women creating and and participating and and making their own decisions about their sizes their family and what works for them. We know um, from research, and I will get some of those actual studies, um, that actually when when women are are actually given, when actually are making their own choices, that actually family sizes stay a little more smaller, that people are making decisions financially and in terms of really supporting the children they have in their health, also doing much better. Um, how do we get – how is that message being disseminated as it were <laughs> yeah. right, in, in the world? Because right. I, I, what we're talking about here are, are imposing limits, imposing an idea of what, of what women should be doing. Right. So, I mean, I'll say 
some of what Maine Family Planning is doing. Yes. Um, that, um, you know, there's so much inform- misinformation about abortion that is, it's, you know, really easy to tell a lie and really hard to undo it. So there is a lot of misinformation or, you know, fake news <laughs> about abortion and the decision-making processes that people go through when they're deciding whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy. And a lot of myths about what actually abortion is and what the procedures are. And so um, recently, uh, Maine Family Planning has started, we have developed, myself working in coordination with um, my my boss in public affairs, but also our abortion services director, we've developed um, a training for supporters that actually marries the clinic, like demystifying the clinical process and the questions people have about abortion if they haven't experienced it or provided that care with um, the political information, sort of history and context and values like practice and having values-based conversations about abortion and so we are we did an inaugural training on the anniversary of the women's march in augusta we're going to belfast next actually on march 2nd Um, and we're taking this training around the state because what what we've really found out is that even people who support abortion rights um, are maybe really confused about all of the misinformation that's out there and maybe unintentionally perpetuating stigma or misinformation. And so we wanted to do some deeper leadership development with our folks and say, you know, abortion, because of the violence of the anti-abortion movement, a lot of people who provide this care have had to necessarily be more quiet about what we do and and what i'm finding is that the more transparent we can be and talking with people about the procedure itself and the research about the effect it has on women's lives when they're denied abortions that they are seeking um the more that we can actually dig in and beat stigma and beat back the lies and we can build a much stronger movement for access so that's um we'll be doing those all around the state throughout 2018 I think, you know, and just going back a little bit, um, talking about uh, things that pe- that um, people get wrong about abortion, I think. Um, you know, one of the things that when we talk about the 20-week ban, it's, it you know, a 20-week ban is, an, is a, a very serious issue. And I'm going to – I can talk a little bit about why that is. But in general, 90 – about 90 percent – of abortions happen in the first trimester. Mm-hmm. So they happen before that 14 weeks, um, week limit that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about 7% happen between 14 and 20 weeks and about 1% happen after um, after the 21 weeks. So, you know, we're talking a very small percentage but what's important to remember about those and, you know, you, you, we keep reading if you're reading any articles from um, about abortion bans, which I do a lot of. But I realize that most people are not <laughs> not doing a lot of that. You read about, you know, these women who have these very wanted pregnancies and find out that they have, uh, you know, their pregnancy is not viable. You know, that these are these are are not pregnancies that are going to make it that are and so they have the choice about whether to carry to continue to carry or whether to end that pregnancy at that point and these are these are people who are already you know devastated 
by the reality of the situation and then to have this sort of vitriol and, you know, and then and, – and also lack of access when they need it the most – I, you know, I, I think that's the part that we often don't talk about in that. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, the reality is that most abortion happens very early on. And when it doesn't, a lot of the time it's because, you know, these are not people who are planning right. to have their yeah. pregnancy go this yeah. way. Well. Yes, we'll continue with that. I just want to say, if you've just tuned in, this is WERU Community Radio, and this is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing reproductive health care here in Maine and nationally with Julie Jenkins and Kate Vaughn from Maine Family Planning. So the kind of education that you're doing and the kind of services you're providing in terms of education and in terms of uh, contraceptive care that that seems the very very proactive in terms of make helping women and families make their own choices about about how their family should grow or not grow so it seems that the conversation as you just mentioned that um people are making these decisions uh often in very dire situations not a cavalier. This right. is not a cavalier mm-hmm. decision. This is certainly for many a crisis, uh, and 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 so you're really providing that kind of of education and services. Are, are you not? Yeah, yeah. I think what we're what I think what we do really well is trust our patients um, and trust that whatever circumstances under you know they're making decisions within that they have made the decision particularly about pregnancy, that is that is the best decision they could possibly make. Um, we trust that they weigh everything um, and that they that we're going to honor their right to carry a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy. And that, I think, is fundamental to the work of abortion care providers and family planning providers, that people have the right to make decisions about um, about their families and whether or not they have them and at what rate those families grow. And um, as Julie's saying, that this 1% of abortions that occurs past the, you know, 20-week mark, this is really politicized, and it politicizes something that's often a very difficult decision for people. And for those who did not intend to carry through their pregnancy and are having abortions further along in pregnancy, often this has to do with financial constraints. This, ha- this is, becomes an economic justice issue. Sometimes it takes a very long time for people to put together money in order to be able to follow through on the decision they've already made that they know is best for them. Um, and so that the sort of politicization of this and the barriers that are put in the way that really hurts disproportionately poor women and disproportionately nationally poor women um, women of color are poor and so it really is an economic and racial justice issue as well as an issue of of you know self determination and, and sort of the feminist principle of trusting women absolutely and I think also you know women are women who are motivated to to get an abortion are going to try are going to do their best to find a way to do that and all that all that putting these barriers into place does is often does push out the timeline for mm-hmm. these women you know these are women who if if they had access earlier on 
often would have would have made that choice earlier. And a lot of times you're seeing people after that 14 weeks who couldn't get the money together, who couldn't travel to wherever mm-hmm. they needed to go. And so that's what's pushed them into a later a later situation is is often the barriers that have been put into place in the effort to try to keep women from having abortions. It doesn't keep them from having them. It keeps them from having them earlier and and safely. less risks safely. possibly yeah. and, and, right. and, and jeopardizes women's health. Yeah. Right. Like abortion has always existed since pregnancy existed, but it has not always been legal and safe. And so the question is not, is abortion going to exist? It's, is it going to be legal and safe and accessible? Um, and, and I think main family planning, you know, on several levels, we are trying to innovate and increase access and, um, and remove barriers. And so, you know, the, the lawsuit that Julie's involved in is one example of trying to remove a really serious barrier for people in Maine. Um, and our telehealth, you know, is a way of, to reach all the people at our clinics. And we've also, we're part of, a, we're one of four states that are part of a clinical trial um, to provide medication um, abortion via mail. And so it combines the telehealth and using mail to get these, to get this procedure accessible to people wherever they are in the state. But there are still legal barriers, and that's part of why we've taken some things to the court, the issue of the physician-only law and also um, the main care restriction on abortion care. Okay, now we have to get into more details about this because we, we've just really said a lot. We, we've talked about not having access, and we've talked about some barriers, but tell us, Julie, uh, Julie Jenkins, about uh, the lawsuit and all about Maybe start with tel- what telemedicine is and what the okay. what the male situation is with with uh, the medical with the. So in two thousand and sixteen, we started doing um, doing telemedicine, and we and we started it at certain clinics in northern Maine. Um, was it two thousand and fifteen, Kate? Yeah, it's yeah, 2015. 2015. Yeah. So um, I I was um, one of the one of the nurse practitioners who started up in Machias and Callis, and then we had um, services in Fort Kent and Presque Isle, and that was that was so that women at the farthest Very reaches rural. of our of our uh, our clinics would be able to get access to that care without having to travel all the way to Bangor or Augusta, um, and so. We, um, when we started that project, the idea was that um, we would then expand it, and we did. We did expand it to our other clinics, um, and that this would this would solve a lot of that access problem. But one of the things that happens is we still need. So, I am I am providing. Um, the education and doing the ultrasound and doing all of uh, all of the visit up until the point where the woman takes the first medication. So medication abortion is is a, a set of a series of two of two medications, and you take the first one in the office, and then the other one is administered at home by the patient herself. So the the pill that is taken in the office. Um, the physician actually there still has to be a physician who watches over the over the iPad or over the computer um, while the woman administered or while the woman swallows that pill. 
That's basically it. And so you have to have a dock available to be mm-hmm. able to do that. And so sometimes that is, that's just not a that's not a that's not a reality. We have one clinical day where we provide um, in in clinic services in Augusta, and so those are that's the day where our docs are actually available to us. Any other day, we have to find someone that we can we can get to do this to watch a woman swallow a pill. Yes, over the internet. <laughs> over, over the, the internet. internet. Yes. So, um, and that was one of the, you know, this is one of the things that we talk about a lot that, you know, I talked about, um, uh, about this case and one of the, one of the, um, I, I was up in, I was up in, uh, Presque Isle. I was covering for one of our, our, um, uh, clinicians who was out on maternity leave. And so I happened to be up there. And we had a woman who wanted to come in and have a medication abortion. And I was there. The ultrasound machine was there. Everything was in place. Um, and we were not able to find a doc who could watch her swallow that pill. And so she was not able to get services that day. It it delayed her um, her procedure by 10 days. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Delayed her procedure by 10 days. At that point, she was no longer, she could no longer get a medication abortion. So she had to travel down to, um, to Bangor and get an in-clinic procedure. And, um, you know, which wasn't what she started out wanting. And she, you know, and having to travel this round trip distance and, you know, it, it does, it's still a barrier to care. And Maine is such a rural state that people have to travel from so far in order to, to access services. And that is part of what, um, you know, what changing the, the physician-only law. I mean, there's no reason for the physician-only law. It's the, this is the only thing that is on, that is, that specifically says only a a physician can can provide this service, um, and you know there's a, so there isn't any reason for it. I I have the skills to be able to provide these services. I do things that are very similar to this. I was able to provide medication abortion in California. I would now be able to provide in clinic services in California because California has changed their their law based on an 11,000 person study that shows that in clinic procedure is just as safe when done if if not safer when done by nurse practitioners than and and uh, physicians assistants than by physicians and so is that the aspiration that's aspiration okay yeah and so you were doing that in california and I, you were trained as cuz you yeah. are uh, you are trained to do that kind of thing well i was doing medication because okay. at the time california did not was still not a state where that was where it, in clinic but i but now but i um you know, I do colposcopy. I do endometrial biopsy. I put IUDs in. I do things that are similar in both uh, scope and complexity to this procedure. Um, this is, you know, this is not. Uh, this is a very safe and very um, uh, minimal kind of procedure. I think people have this idea of it because mm. people compare yeah. it in their in their minds. Everyone thinks about a DNC. 
And they think about having to go into the hospital, a dilation and keratage, where you go into the hospital and you're in, you know, you're you're in an in an in hospital setting, and it's a much different. And we probably don't want to get into exactly. I mean, we don't need Mm -hmm. to get into the, but. but it's but i think that's what people that's what people have in their minds and that is not what we are talking about here you know um, right yeah so the alternative is that that people under the scope of their practice and under their training will be able to do all the things that they're trained to do and right. provide services for women who are making choices for themselves instead of having something imposed well, Which I think is what we're talking about a lot here. Yes, go ahead. Go yes, ahead, Kate. Just, the the sort of consequences, it's infuriating to be not be able to access care when there's a qualified medical professional able to do that for you. That's infuriating for anyone across the board. But I think it's worth noting that the consequences of a barrier like this, a needless law, Um, that puts a medically unnecessary barrier in front of people, the consequences of that disproportionately fall on poor women. So someone who has a lot of resources will be very inconvenienced by needing to travel to Bangor. But someone who has very few economic resources, um, support in in their, their immediate network of family and friends, and also maybe access to a vehicle or some type of transportation, someone who has a very unpredictable work schedule and may be penalized for needing to take time off to travel, who has other children to care for, all of these things, they fall hardest on poor women. And so that could actually, that actually puts the procedure out of out of reach for those folks sometimes. Um, And so in the case that Julie was describing, this person was able to go to Bangor and that's still very unjust that that happened. But we can also we can recognize that for a lot of people, that kind of denial means like, well, I'm not going to be able to make that travel to Bangor or Augusta or Portland happen. And then I'm not going to be able to terminate the pregnancy um, that I, and I'm going to have to carry it. And, um, and this is really, again, it it comes down to self-determination for everyone, but also it creates a real second sort of tier of access and care for poor people. Um, and that's really unjust on a, on a whole other level. And that's uh, that's also the reality of, you know, any of these laws that change in any of these states. Um, so, you know, that when you're talking about um, reducing access in any way, 20-week abortion ban or whatever it may be, um, states that are just planning to have abortion not be not, – not be available in their state at all. It's never going to be women with resources who are going to be impacted by that. They'll travel to another state. They'll travel to another country. They'll do what they need to do. And it's not going to be – it's not going to impact them in the same way. I'm, I'm just going to – those who just turned in, I'm, you are listening to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. And we're discussing reproductive health care with Julie Jenkins and Kate Vaughn from Maine Family Planning. Now, many of us – some of us are old enough <laughs> to remember what it was like before 1973, what Roe, versus, Roe v. Wade meant to, to women in, uh, in our world. Women were always getting some sort of abortion. Whether it was safe is another problem. Women were dying. They were dangerous procedures. They were charlatans. So basically what we're talking about, because this is a healthy options program, we are talking about women's health. And by, by making these 
changes or attempting to, we are we're certainly creating an unhealthy situation for for women in in our our state and in our country. Just let that sink in. Um, some people, you know, this has been since 1973, just doing business. Although there's been conflict or or controversy, um, it still has been the law of the land, and people have had access. Now, are we in Maine closing clinics? I know that that we that I've read literature in other states that they've gone from hundreds of clinics to five or to one or mm-hmm. none. What's happening in Maine in terms of of some changes? Is it because we have that law that we talked about earlier that protects Roe v. Wade here that we're in a little better shape, or how to? Or am I making an assumption? I mean, I think you're 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 right that there are many many closures that have happened mostly due to state level laws across the country. And so Texas, for example, has seen yes. almost all of their providers gone, right? And other other states too. Um, I think yes, the fact that we have um, we have the law that we have that reiterates um, the tenets of Roe v. Wade that that means in part that we have some support. Um, in, in Maine, and we actually have quite a we have quite a few clinics. We are a very rural state, so we we don't have clinics everywhere, of course. But we, you know, combined with Maine Family Planning and Mabel Wadsworth and um, Planned Parenthood, we cover a fair amount of our state. Um, but the fight to keep that going is is continuous. Right, um, the issues we're dealing with with Title Ten right now are an example. Um, That's but, the federally fund federal funding yeah. for so for federal clinic. funding for is, what? It, you know that depends who's in office at the time, and um, you know potentially what are people trying to distract everyone from looking at, so they decide to pull you know make abortion a big circus again, right? And so. That's a consistent fight, but I do think um, Maine does have some champions and some um, folks who support our work, but it, it's always a fight. Um, it's, it's worth noting that 16 Maine legislators um, recently became a part of what's called the State Innovation Exchange, um, a council on basically reproductive rights. And so there are 16 main legislators who have signed on publicly to say, we're going to be champions for reproductive rights, and that includes abortion rights. Um, and so we're really excited to work with those folks, and we're really excited to do more education so they know more about what we do and why it is important. Um, and we also partner with Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, or GER, which is a group, <laughs> yes. a group of advocates um, from the generation who remember what life was like before Roe v. Wade, um, women who's, uh, who have had friends and, and people they love um, die because of unsafe, illegal abortions. Um, and so they, we have a real intergenerational movement together to keep fighting for this. But it is kind of, you know, it's really frustrating for them. They say, we've been doing this for decades. Why is this still something we have to fight so hard for? And, you know, I think also it, it, we're talking about laws that differ state to state. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of the things we're talking about. And so, you know, some of this is very arbitrary. And that's a really important thing to remember. I, You know, I've read um, – sometimes I read the comments and I've read <laughs> comments that have said things like, well, I don't think nurses should be doing surgery. Now, there are, there are layers of misunderstanding in in that sort of this isn't surgery i think right. that's the first thing Ab- abortion is not surgery um and um you know these are 
we're talking about nurse practitioners. We're talking about midwives. We're talking about people. I mean, midwives are doing things that are way beyond the complexity of of this service. You right. know, they're they're delivering babies. They're suturing. They're doing all kinds of things. Um, and abortion is safer than childbirth. Way, <laughs> way, way safer, safer than childbirth. Yes. It's so important for people to understand so how safer. safe this procedure is. <laughs> it's it's you know it's one of the safest procedures there is. It's right up there with wisdom tooth extraction. So you know when you think about um, how safe that yeah. that procedure is, um, and you know but the but some of the arbitrary. Pieces of this are, you know, that this the, the citizen only law does not exist everywhere. It was it was it was a main law, and it just happened to be in the wording of the way that the law was written in Maine, and that is true for every state. That whether mid whether nurse practitioners and midwives can do these procedures is based on how the law was originally written, and and one of the important parts of realizing what that was about is that. A lot of those – the writing of those laws came before the advent of independent practice for APRNs, advanced practice for, advanced practice nurse practitioners or mm-hmm. advanced, advanced practice RNs, nurse practitioners, midwives, physicians assistants. It came before that. Does that mean that there's more training or what um, does advanced practice mean? So advanced – yes. So advanced practice um, RNs or mid-level providers or whatever term we're currently using um, – you know, those are people who have advanced uh, – it's usually a master's level degree. Um, it comes with a lot of extra clinical training that allows you to do these to do these services and these procedures um, and to diagnose and treat and to do a lot of the things. Now, many people are going to um, – nurse practitioners and and physician's assistants and just think that their their nurse practitioner and their physician assistant is a doctor. You know, they don't know that they go in, they see a medical provider, they assume that they're seeing, you know. So, you know, a lot of people have as their primary care person, mm-hmm. whoever in that in that practice happens to be, you know, uh, may very well be a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. And so, you know, this this particular law in Maine was written in such a way that it was specific to physician. But in for instance, in New Hampshire or Vermont, the there is no physician only restriction. So since midwives and nurse practitioners and physician assistants have been have been, you know, they're able to provide these services in New Hampshire and Vermont because that's not written into their law. So you were able to do this kind of work before this law, and how long you said this law came in? No, this law was in 1979. Oh, I see. Um, it was before. So, med- so I was able to do this these services in California, California. because California had changed their mm-hmm. and had um, expanded access for medication abortion to, to mid levels. So it's basically an outdated law, and it's also worth noting that the nurse practitioners and nurse midwives. These are woman-dominated fields of practice, right? And so it's worth noting that as this rise in, you know, advanced practice for women and that these laws have not been updated, to me, that's also worth noting that there's something sort of, uh, there's something sort of sexist about the whole thing in general. 
So tell us, you're doing, uh, this lawsuit is about this law? Uh, yeah. Julie Jenkins, uh, you're a uh, plaintiff? Lead Jenkins plaintiff? v. Almy is the name of the oh My goodness, you have your lawsuit. own... Well, it's not just me. It's me and a number of other individual plaintiffs and then um, uh, main family planning and also – Yes. And also um, uh, Planned Parenthood. And and the ACLU is kind of bringing all of that together. Yes. American Civil Liberties of Maine or nationally? Of Maine, it's it's yeah, well the Maine it's national it's yeah, the yeah. national because it's a it's right. a federal oh that's right that's it's right because it's federal but, right um, but it is also um, the Maine yeah uh, yes uh huh so so what's where what's the status where are we with this uh, by the way if you've just turned in I'm Rhonda Feynman you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio we're discussing reproductive health care with Julie Jenkins and Kate Vaughn from Maine Family Planning. Um, well, right now, you know, we're what what's happening right now with the case is that um, so the complaint the complaint was filed and then there was a wait to see what would happen. Um, the state had a couple of choices, and one of which was to come back and say, you know, we were asking for a dismissal. We don't think there's any basis to this case. And um, if that had happened, then there would have been another long period of time where we would have worked to convince. That, that that was not the case and that we this case should go forward. Now, instead, they answered. So when they answered, they said, yeah, you know, we're not saying this should be dismissed, but we're here's the here are all of the things in this that we're disputing. So instead of spending time, you know, dis, um, on on trying to get that, trying to actually move the case forward. The case is just going forward. So I think that, um, I think that the, the, uh, hearings are scheduled for the summer. Um, and that will, that will very likely be pushed back, but that is where we are right now is that, you know, the first hearings will be in the summer of 2018. And where will that be in federal court? No, where, how does that work or who hears it? So, um, Kate, do you want to do you Yeah, so this this case is we so the court cases take a long time. So <laughs> this one thing is that they're really they're really important and the courts are really important, but it it is a lengthy process and we we think that this case could end up being bounced out of, you know, um being bounced up to a higher court. So um, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to be heard, okay. the, where the hearings will be yet. Um, and we'll likely know more about that soon. But um, but, it's, but it is, these are like lengthy sort of processes. Right. Okay. And it's going to start in Maine. And then if it, if it moves right. up to a higher court, then it will mm-hmm. go to first district. And then okay. it, you okay. know, because so, it is a federal suit. So that to be continued, as we say. Um, yeah. I just wanted to get back to a couple of, of things. Um so, so we'll we'll I've definitely get updates on on how this is the, the, this is working. When you're doing telemedicine, um, is there other positive aspects of it that's helping women, or is this? Do you have to get? I mean, is, is there ever a reason to consult with someone from a rural in a rural clinic about some other health issue that's happening? Is there, or is this really becoming very much a, a hindrance? Just- well. I, I mean, I think you know I'm there. 
so I'm already talking right. with them. Right. Um, Right. You know, so in there, they are getting a lot of a lot of education and a lot of support right. because there I mean, you that's are. my job. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's so all right. So that's good to point out. And what when you said mailing, would that be mailing both pills, the first pill and the second? And when you were talking about mailing, okay, yes. And so um, there is they get education via. It's the same. It, it's it's also via telemedicine, but they get that education beforehand, and then the meds I are see. mailed out okay. to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. and those. I, I think it's worth noting that the telemedicine and the meds by mail clinical trial really have changed the landscape of access in Maine for abortion care before ten weeks or up to ten weeks. Um, and so, it is a really important innovation. Um, and with the removal of the physician only law, we would we would see access even more improved. Okay. But um, quickly, it yeah, would, it would happen um, you know, immediately. It would, happen immediately. Yeah. it would very quickly change it again. But Maine Family Planning using telehealth and joining this study that only four other um, states are doing has really improved access, so that we are able to meet people uh, meet their needs much better than we were before. But it's okay. not perfect right. yet. So. Um, what about contraceptive contraception? I mean, is that something we can mail to somebody? How does that work in terms of access? <laughs> um, we are looking at doing some, you know, we're looking at some innovative uh, sort of models. There's definitely stuff out there right now with different states that are that have been that are that are more rural that are doing more telemedicine. And um, that have more services available in that way. There are a lot of things. There's a lot of education that can be done without mm-hmm. seeing someone right in front of you. And um, and so, uh, you know, we are. That is one of the ways that we're looking to expand practice. So we can let you know more as we That's as great. we're going forward. So I would say too that in terms of education, and I know that you have a whole sex education conference or something coming mm-hmm. up, and I want to hopefully talk to someone about that in the in the months to come here on healthy options. But in in terms of actually helping someone get contraception and doing some sex, sex education, is is it better to have someone right in front of you, or how, or other things come up that might not, or how does how do we view that i mean i think that you lose something in the tele in the telehealth um you know i have been doing a lot of uh i'm training currently to do um uh transgender health care what i like to call gender affirming health care um that's kind of the terminology we're we're kind of moving towards um but um I have been doing training and I've been doing telehealth training. So I sit in for a while. I was sitting in on uh, appointments with other providers who are already trained to do that. And then they have been observing me actually doing those, those, um, uh, those um, appointments. And, uh, but oftentimes I'm doing those appointments in over telehealth in their office. And I will say that it differs very much. My experience of it differs very much. And I assume that the patient's experience of it differs somewhat too, although they don't really know they don't really know what to expect from the beginning. But um, when I am on the tele the telemedicine uh, or doing telehealth 
on the iPad with somebody who's in the office in Lewiston, that is very different for me than when I have someone in Belfast that's right there with me. Um, I find that it doesn't even – the impact is not as great for me about being observed, which you would think it would be, as it is about whether the patient is in the same the same setting as, as I am. But I think, you know, those are just – there's some amount of that that you're going to – you're going to lose a little bit, but the gain is huge for – for being able to have access. Right. I mean, it is really the being able to provide the gender affirming care and using telehealth to help connect people to that is life changing yeah. for transgender folks living in rural Maine. And I've heard that directly from leaders in that community. It is. So I, I think like for me, it's important to think about how can we improve access that happens in person and continually improve that access for everyone and also recognize that there are living in a rural state like Maine there are people who are very isolated from services they need and if there is anything we can do to get them their care um I think that's that's the right thing to do, and that's what we've chosen to do. Well, that's right. so. Again, in terms of access to actual uh, uh, contraception, do people have to come in? How does that work? Do we have grants? Is there a way to actually provide some birth control pills or or oh, condoms or so what do we, we? We have a Maine Family Planning has a sliding fee scale, and so that goes from uh, step level two. Up to a step level seven, and what does step that mean? level two is donation level, and step level seven. So it's all based on income, um, and so a lot of our teens are step level two um, because you know they. Yes. Um, and so you know that does that is that uh, changes the ability to provide both health care, and that also covers their birth control pills. Or their Nexplanon, or their IUD, or you know, so um, so that sliding fee scale is really an important piece of how we are providing, you know, that services to people in in a way that's affordable and manageable for them. Right, and that's part of being a Title Ten, that federal family planning money we were talking about. That's part of being that kind of provider is offering this scale, um, and it does mean that I mean, main family planning sees all kinds of people, but it does mean that we are a critical resource for low-income folks across Maine um, and that there are are folks that we see where we're the only provider they really get to see. Um, And so I think we're we're really um, kind of on the front lines of care for folks who are denied access to a lot of things. Well, yes. That's that's in, in extraordinary work. Um, I just want to say that in respect to our topic today, I'd like to call attention to our listeners to another public affairs program here on WERU, which occurs every first Wednesday, and that's today um, at 4.30 till 5 p.m. this afternoon. That's February 7th. You can tune into the Reproductive Left, a locally produced program on sexual and reproductive health with host Abby Stout. So I think right here on WERU 89.9 FM. So the conversation will continue. I would I would want to thank I, – I, well, I want to talk about how the people can access your work. Mm-hmm. I know it's mainfamilyplanning.org. Is there a phone number as well that we should – okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, if folks want to get in touch about advocacy or organizing or public education, um, they can go to family, mainfamilyplanning.org slash organize. Um, they can contact me directly at 207-480-3518. Um, yes, yeah. and that's Cape On. And we are doing a training, um, our Fighting Forward uh, abortion advocacy training in Belfast on Friday, March 2nd. And if people go to mainfamilyplanning.org, Organize, they will find a way to register for that. Fantastic. Thank you, Julie Jenkins and Kate Fawn, for being with us today and for doing the important work you both are doing. For information on Maine Family Planning, you can go to the website, as we just said, mainefamilyplanning.org. We will have links to Maine Family Planning and to other information that was mentioned when we post this Healthy Options program on the Public Affairs Archives at weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of the show or would like to share it, please look for it in the on-demand archives of recent programs at weru.org. Thanks to John Greenman for engineering and to Petra Hall for production assistance. As always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Check out Bookworm, WERU's live radio book club. Join me, Brooke, to hear interviews with local authors where we discuss books, reading, and life. Bookworm airs each month, second Thursday at 10 a.m. Hope you can join us.